sooner or later, <coughs> you are going to have a life-changing experience. How many of you have had life-changing experiences in the past? It may have been meeting someone special. It may have been a family member coming down with a sickness. It may have been a near-death experience for you or, or a loved one. It could be any number of things where an event happens and you know something's going to be different on the other side of it, a life-changing experience. I have a friend who has had many life-changing experiences. We joke about it. He's my best friend growing up. And he has had several near-death experiences. One of them uh, happened when we were teenagers and he was riding in the back of a pickup truck, which was going much too fast. And it came upon a sharp curve and it ejected him from the back of the pickup truck. And he flew out of the truck some 30, 40 feet and had some serious bodily damage. They were afraid he was going to have some brain damage. I remember being in the, the ER with him as he was suffering and he was just saying nonsensical things because of, of what seemed to have been broken in him for, as a result of that. I asked him, uh, what changed as a result of that? What changed as a result of that wreck that you were in all those years ago? And, and he said it changed me in a lot of ways, as you might can imagine. He, he is thankful that God spared his life. He, he believes that because God spared his life, um, he, he knows he's saved by grace, but he knows he owes his life, his very life to God. And so he wants to live all of his life in gratitude for God's grace to him not only spiritually, but in that moment as well. The thing that I've considered about life-changing experiences, though, is that, at least in my own experience, they don't always seem to last very long. Or they, they for some reason, they don't have the power to make the change that is necessary in my life that I want it to do. Like, it doesn't seem it's as efficient as we would want it to be. So you have a, a near-death experience, this life-changing experience. I went to Africa in 1998, a life-changing experience. I got malaria. I almost died, and I was so grateful for God's grace and all that he taught me in that experience, and I thought I would be, that would change me forever, that I would, I would no longer take for granted all the gifts that we have in America, all the good things that we have, all the ways that we have it easy here, that we don't there, and it lasted maybe six months. It didn't last as long as I thought it should. It didn't change me in the ways that I, I thought it should change me. Perhaps you, you've seen that in your own experience. What our text shows us today is that each one of us needs to be changed radically. We need to be changed in particular in order to be in a right relationship to God, to be able to enter into his kingdom. And as we think about life-changing experiences, 
we have to recognize they don't bring about this change that is required for us to be in a right relationship with God. They might change us morally in some sense. We might have some moral reformation in our lives because of some traumatic experience. But ultimately, it doesn't give us what we need when it comes to relationship with God. It's not effective enough, it's not deep enough, and it doesn't last as long as we need it to last. And to that, Jesus tells every one of us here today, you must be born again. You must be born again. It is absolutely essential if you are to see the kingdom of God. Notice in our passage in these verses... The structure is pretty clear to see. You have three statements or questions from Nicodemus. And then you have three statements, responses of Jesus. And each one of those responses begins, Truly, truly, I say to you. Take note of this, Nicodemus. Take note of this, everyone who reads. This is important. This is essential. Truly, truly, I say to you. With all the authority of God and the scriptures, I say this to you. You must be born again. So we'll walk through this passage looking at each question, each statement by Nicodemus and then followed by Jesus' response. Notice the first one of uh, pairs of these in verses 1 through 3. John tells us that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Now notice the connection of this verse to the previous verses. He had just told us that some people believed in Jesus because of the signs that he was, he was doing. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man, you see how he's doing that? There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He's portraying Nicodemus as a representative of these who see something in Jesus because of the signs that he is doing, and yet it's an inadequate faith. Nicodemus is a representative not only of the Pharisees and the Jews, he is a representative of unbelievers, of those who come to Jesus because they see these miraculous signs, and yet Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them because there's something inadequate about their faith. John calls him a ruler of the Jews. So this is no ordinary Jew, no ordinary Pharisee. This is a ruler of the Jews, perhaps of a synagogue, one who stands in a certain amount of authority over other Jews and Pharisees. He came to Jesus by night, and look at what he says to him. This is his statement, or even we could say a question, even though it doesn't look like a question. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one else can do these signs. There's again the connection to the previous paragraph. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He recognizes something. God is with him. He's a teacher from God because of these signs. And yet he doesn't quite know who Jesus is. It's a, it's a question, even though it doesn't look like a question, about the identity of Jesus. We know that you're a teacher come from God. Because nobody can do these signs. But who exactly are you? What, who do you proclaim to be for yourself? Who are you professing to be? Jesus, as he does many times 
throughout the scripture doesn't directly answer Nicodemus's question, but he gives the answer to the question Nicodemus should have been asking. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, that word can also refer to above, unless one is born again or from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And of course, as I've already mentioned, this points to the absolute necessity of being born again, of being changed if you are going to see the kingdom of God. That means to, to understand, not, not just simply uh, go to heaven when you die, but enter into see the kingdom of God, the reign of God, to, that your mind would be changed in such a way that you now recognize who Jesus is and you recognize the reign of God over your life and over the world. But I want you to see something else here. I want you to see the comprehensive nature of the change which needs to take place. Think about the image you need to be born again. It's a, it's a comprehensive, radical change that needs to take place. It's not just an exchange of parts. It's not just an addition of a thing here and a subtraction of a thing here. One of the great things about having an old vehicle is the, the ability to just interchange parts, especially uh, Honda Civics. I had a, we had a Honda Civic for years and years, and it was amazing because if you were to go to a, a junkyard, you would find probably the part you need, and you, could just, you wouldn't have to change everything about the car. You could just take what you needed out of the old car and put it into the new one, replace it, and it runs perfectly, runs beautifully just interchangeable parts. You can just fix it by adding this or subtracting that. Well, this, the change which is required to see the kingdom of God is not like this. You need to be completely changed, transformed if you were to see the kingdom of God. You might look at your own life and think, yeah, I recognize some, there are some bad habits that I have. I recognize that there are some parts of me that need changing. I have this, I have, uh, an attitude problem or an anger problem. I, I can get angry at the snap of a, a finger. And I need to change that. I recognize I need to change that. Or you have a, a problem with lust and, and you're drawn to, to lusting with the eyes, either, either over people or over things. You, you're, you have a tendency toward greed. What it, you recognize a lot of these changes that need to take place in your own life. But unless you're willing to see you need a complete overhaul, you are underestimating your need. Christians, as you look back on, on your life before, when, when was that moment where you came to recognize you, you didn't just need new parts, you needed a complete change of your heart, of your mind, of everything about you? It produces in us a great humility. A Christian can no longer consistently look at someone else and say, how could they possibly do that? Or I would never do something like that. Maybe you wouldn't, but, but it's not because of anything in you. It's because you have been changed completely from the inside out by being born again. And it is not anything of yourself. It is a gift of God. This change that takes place is a gift of God and it creates such a deep humility. 
Do you, do you catch yourself pridefully looking at unbelievers and thinking how sinful they are, like, like that couldn't have been you? But when you see that this comprehensive change has taken place because of God and not because of yourself, well, then you look on them with mercy. And you can approach them now with compassion, recognizing without God's grace, you would be right there too. It does help us in our evangelism as well, though, doesn't it? When we share the gospel with others, we, we can no longer simply try to convince someone intellectually about the truth of the gospel. And we're not just trying to get them to change into a different person morally so that they'll be better people. We recognize they need a complete change. It's a radical change which is necessary. It's a comprehensive change which is necessary. And this is brought about by Jesus' words, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But notice the second question Nicodemus gives in Jesus' response. Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And I feel like Jesus should have said, just been like, Nicodemus, are you serious? I mean, this sounds like a Facebook conversation. Or someone, you're, you're having a conversation or an argument, and somebody takes you in an overly literalistic way, and you're like, are you, can we not even have a conversation here? Nicodemus, are you serious here? What are you talking about? Nicodemus is, either he's completely confused, or he's not trying to understand what Jesus is saying. Of course you can't do that to be born again. He's talking about something else here, Nicodemus. And so Jesus responds again, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He elaborates a little more. He explains a little more in this section about what this new birth is. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Notice these three arguments we might say Jesus gives in response to Nicodemus he gives an Old Testament lesson he gives a just a rational lesson and then he gives a, a lesson from nature well maybe maybe you don't see the the Old Testament lesson but notice later on too Jesus says to Nicodemus you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know what I'm talking about in other words Jesus is saying this is a part of the scripture this is a part of God's word from the Old Testament that I'm teaching you about. You're a teacher of Israel. You should know this. You, you claim to know the scripture. You should have seen this. And so for scholars who try to consider what does this mean, water and spirit, and look outside of the Bible, they're taking the wrong approach. You, you go back to the, the scriptures of the Old Testament, which they would have been familiar with. And I think the connection is clear with Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26. This combination of water and spirit. Jesus is pointing back to this promise of 
Old Te- the Old Testament speaking of this new covenant which will take place. Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 36, specifically 25 and 26. This is how God will vindicate His holy name. This is what God will do to glorify His name among His people. Look at verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus is connecting this new birth, this being born again, being born of water and spirit with the cleansing of uncleannesses, the cleansing of idolatries, which God will do to his people when he puts his spirit within them. He cleans out that which is old, that which is decaying, that which is death, that which clings to idols and idolatry. He cleans all of that out and he puts his spirit within his people so that they might obey him with gladness and joy. This is what Jesus is proclaiming to Nicodemus. You should know this, Nicodemus. This is what the scripture says. That's the Old Testament lesson. You should have already known this. But then there's a a rational argument that he makes. Basically, like produces like. Flesh produces flesh. Flesh gives birth to flesh. He's not speaking in a negative connotation here like Paul does in his letters. He's just speaking physically. The physical produces physical, and the Spirit of God produces that which is spirit. It's... Makes perfect sense, Nicodemus. Not only should you know this from the Old Testament, you should know this. And then also he gives this illustration from nature. The wind, that word refers to either spirit. It can be translated spirit or wind, either one. The spirit, the wind, blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And we might say, well, that was years ago when we didn't really know how to forecast the weather. Now we have all the, the knowledge we need about where the wind comes from and where the wind goes. Um, but I would argue this still makes perfect sense, thinking about the hurricanes we've had recently. We can have a general idea of where the wind is going, but it still surprises us. We don't know exactly what moves the wind or why it will go this direction or that direction. We have different guesses about what it will do, but it still surprises us. And if something surprises you, that means, number one, it's outside of your control. And number two, you don't quite fully understand it. And it is the same way with the Spirit of God when He gives a new birth. So it is with those who are born of the Spirit. You have no control over it. You... you, you have little understanding of it. You don't know exactly the details of how it all works out. Why did the Holy Spirit of God give you the new birth and not 
the guy two seats over when you were both sitting in the same service, hearing the same gospel message, hearing the same proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners and risen from the dead. Why you? I don't know. It was outside of our control. It was outside of my understanding. I didn't. It's not that my heart leaned toward Jesus a little bit more than his did. In his sovereignty, in his will, he decided to do it. Wind blows where it wills. So it is with those who are born of the Spirit. So we saw the extent of this change which is needed. Now we see the quality of it. It is a supernatural or spiritual birth. It's not flesh. It's nothing to do with the will of man or the work of man. It's nothing to do with the fact that Nicodemus was born as a Jew among Pharisees. It has nothing to do with his leaning toward God. It has to do with the Spirit of God giving birth to those whom he chooses. It is a spiritual birth. And now I, I know I said that it was comprehensive, but now I have to give that a little nuance. Because it is a spiritual birth. Right? There is no physical change in your body that takes place with the new birth. Rather, he transforms you from the inside out. He transforms your spirit. This is a part of the already and not yet of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is already here. Those who have been born again have already, in a sense, entered into that kingdom and are citizens of that kingdom. And yet they're holding out. They're waiting for the full realization of the kingdom of God in their own lives, in their own hearts, in their own bodies, and in this world. Don't we long for that kingdom of God to come? We yearn for it. And so when I say it's comprehensive, I'm referring to your spirit which has been completely cleansed of your idolatry and the newness which you have within you. But your body is still waiting for that full realization of the kingdom of God. There will be a time, there will be a moment when your body will experience a sort of new birth, we could call it. When Jesus returns in all his glory, what does the scripture say? We will be changed in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. Not only will your spirit be cleansed of all idolatry, your body will be completely transformed. You will be new. You will be without sin forever. Can't wait because we are yearning for it. We're yearning to be made more like Jesus Christ. We're yearning spirit, please, Produce the fruit in me now as much as, as much as you're willing to. Please change us from the inside out. This, this spiritual renewal, this spiritual birth creates in us a yearning. And I think John is, is trying to do that for the readers as well. Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God, I want to enter. I want to go. I want to submit myself fully and completely under the reign of God. Creates this thirst, this yearning in our hearts for God to rule over us completely, body and soul. Brothers and sisters, do not settle for thirsting after the things of this world which will not satisfy you. 
Yearn for Christ and His rule over you. Holy Spirit, please create this thirst in us. Make us yearn. Lord, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Nicodemus is not done talking. He should be. (laughs) And yet, in verse 9, he has one more question for, for Jesus. How can these things be? Or in other words... I think more literally he's asking, how, how does this happen? How? His mind is blown. How does this happen that the Spirit creates new life in people? That they're given this new birth? So Jesus' answer then has to do with how this being born again happens. Make that connection. I think, I think we should make that connection. This, Jesus is not simply going in a different direction here. I think he's answering Nicodemus' question. So how does he answer him? First, he, as I already mentioned, says you should know these things, Nicodemus. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? And then I, th- I think Jesus even takes a page out of Nicodemus's book when he starts using the plural here. In a sense, he's scornfully, uh, we might say, mocking Nicodemus. We speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He can tell you heavenly things. And what I think... Uh, a main idea we could bring from these verses are Nicodemus's ultimate problem wasn't his misunderstanding here. It wasn't simply that he was ignorant and couldn't understand what Jesus was teaching. His ultimate problem was that he rejected what Jesus was and what he said. He's rejecting him. You should understand these things, but ultimately... You do not receive our testimony. You do not accept it. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? If if you're not even believing me in these things that make perfect sense in line with the scripture, in line with our experience, in line with nature, you're not believing. You are rejecting the testimony. And then we would go down to verse 19 in chapter 3. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is the judgment of Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night who loved the darkness rather than the light. He is rejecting the testimony of Jesus. He's rejecting Jesus. Your ultimate problem if you are not a believer is not that you don't understand it's that you will not accept the testimony of Jesus about himself. It's not a problem of misunderstanding but unbelief. And then Jesus gives us another Old Testament example. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Turn back in your Bibles to that Old Testament event in Numbers 21. Numbers 21. It's a familiar story, but in case you don't remember what we're talking about here, let's look at it. Numbers 21, 
beginning at verse 4, 4 through 9. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I think of this idea of the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. At the beginning of 52, it says, My servant is lifted up and exalted. And then the rest of chapter 52 and 53 talks about humiliation and suffering of this servant. The, the lifting up of Jesus is connected in Isaiah and in John, the few times it's mentioned as John, is connected specifically with his cross, when he is lifted up on the cross. I think that's what we ordinarily think. One commentator said it actually is even maybe a broader idea than that. Not only speaking of him being lifted up on the cross, but step one, being lifted up on the cross, being crucified for sinners. Step two, being buried and risen up again, lifted up from the grave. And step three, being lifted up, ascended into heaven. As Jesus connects the lifting up of the Son of Man to the new birth given in the Spirit, He's drawing this line of correlation. How can these things be? It comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I think particularly in two ways. First, Jesus, as we know from the rest of the book of John, would be crucified for sinners, dead and buried, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, and then what happens next? And that's when he pours out his spirit, the ultimate fulfilling of this spirit indwelling people. He pours out his spirit on his people. The pouring out of the spirit comes as Jesus is lifted up and exalted in the heavens. He pours out his spirit upon his people and inaugurates this new age of people who are born by the Spirit. But the second way I think he's connecting these two things is that the, the way God has chosen to work is that being born again by the Spirit is vitally linked to looking to Jesus Christ. You have to, just thinking back to the story of the, the fiery serpents, 
you have to wonder, and this is, this is you know, I'm just speculating here, using it as an illustration. I'm not expositing that story. But these people who have been bitten by serpents, Moses make this serpent. Okay, what am I supposed to do now? Well, I'm just waiting for you to, to make this serpent. And then the foolishness, look to the What do you mean look to it? Look to the serpent and I'll be healed? It sounds ridiculous. Why would just looking at it do anything at all? And the seeming ridiculousness of that is matched by what is called the foolishness of the gospel. Look to Christ and live, brothers and sisters. Those of you who have not been born by the Spirit yet, those of you who are lacking the Spirit, look to Christ and live. Turn from your sins like these Israelites in the Old Testament. Turn from your sins, repent, and then look to Christ and live. The application is similar for us believers. There still may be a sense in which we think looking to Christ, just it doesn't seem like it's going to work. There are all kinds of practical things I can do, and these things maybe will create a change in me. And yet, the message is, here's where eternal life comes from. Here's where eternal life comes Anything else you look to in this life, your own merit, your own strength, your own accomplishments, other people, other things, anything you look to will not result in life, will not result in eternal life. Look to Christ and live, brothers and sisters. It is still the means God uses to change us from the inside out. As we look to Christ, the Spirit is there along with the preaching of the gospel, giving us faith to believe, and then he is, He's changing us from the inside out. Look to Christ, brothers and sisters, and it will produce within us a joy that is unmatched in this world. Unmatched. In those callous moments of sin, you think those things are bringing you joy. There may even be fleeting pleasures of sin, the scripture tells us. They will not last. And they will only end in death. True joy is found only in simply looking to Christ, looking to Him. Brothers and sisters, look to Christ. And as our final application, we will be taking the Lord's Supper. And this is the way, this is one of the ways God has given us, one of the means He has given us to look to Christ. As we look upon Him who was crucified for our sins, who died for us, who was buried, who rose from the dead, one whose body was broken for us and his blood poured out, we look to Christ and we have life in this.